is Isaac. I use he, him pronouns. My name is Donna. I use she and her pronouns. Uh, mi nombre es Maria Chavalansud. My name is Maria Chavalansud. Soy indígena. I am indigenous from Guatemala. Yo aquí en Santuario el 30 de I've este been mes. here in the sanctuary from the 30th. I'm three months away from it being two years in sanctuary. Mm. This is um, our fourth session. And this is going to primarily focus on the third chapter of Ruth. But first, I want to start by giving a shout out to protesters in Richmond who uh, tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus last night. And then he discovered the bottom of a lake. <laughs> Can I say a little bit about that too? Please do. Here in I can't leave, but I saw on Facebook like they took down the statue, how they took down the statue. All my life, I asked God, why didn't you, why didn't you take Christopher Columbus on another route, another way to get to India? Because he didn't bring anything good for us. He brought a lot of pain. So for those who don't agree with taking down the statue, they may, they may put it on a ship and put it back and bring it back to where he was born. Y también se pueden ir con él. And maybe they can also leave with him. I feel a little bit more peace in my heart because it did cost a lot of pain. And the teachings that I adore are the teachings of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a reminder that um, that, that original story of Columbus is how the Book of Ruth got to this continent. And uh, for so long, legends about people like Christopher Columbus have been used to continue to centralize power in this white supremacist settler colonial state. And um, seeing people all over the world uh, tearing down statues that tell that story is an important first step. In, f- in finding new stories and new narratives about how we relate to one another as a people. Sí, y también para los escritores. And also for the writers. Um, hay temas que hablan de motivar a la gente. There are topics that they talk about motivating the people. And they'll say, be more like Christopher Columbus. That to me, that's not motivation. He brought death for us. A lot of uh, blood was spilled. So he's a bad example to follow. Don't use him as a way to motivate others. Donna, anything to add there? No, I'm I'm just kneeling at the altar of Maria still. <laughs> <laughs> so it, we have some difficult stuff to discuss today. The third chapter of Ruth really brings kind of the, I mean, it, it brings us into the realm of the sexual vulnerability of migrant women. Um, the politics of what it means to try to gain security and survive in a foreign land. And a lot of, uh, I think for the original readers, racial, racial anxiety about the mixing of this Moabite woman and this Jewish man 
I, and and I want to kind of go back to the one strand of the conflict between Moabites and and the people of Judah that we didn't pull out in that very first session. It's that in the book of Numbers, we talked about how the Moabites were cursed for not offering water to the people of Israel as they migrated out of Egypt. But another part of that original encounter is that um, the book of Numbers tells the story about Moabite women seducing men from Israel and using sexuality to get them to worship the God of the Moabites, Baal Peor. So that, I mean, this kind of adds another level, a specifically gendered level to the reading of what, of Ruth for the original audience of this text that Moabite women are seductresses. And the author is specifically playing on that in this chapter. You know, I think we can have a debate about to what end. I think certainly the aim is to just to try and like subvert those things, but whether or not that's successful is topic for our discussion. But, but that's what we're stepping into here as we enter the third chapter. Um, Can I just have us check in with everybody? You know, um, just in case there are people in here who are survivors, just to make sure that it's, if everyone feels comfortable having this discussion right now or sitting in on the discussion. Yo puedo hablar sobre la situación de la mujer. I can speak to the situation of women. ¿Cómo se dice? Mamita? The Moabite woman. <laughs> to this day, we still have, in the mestizo culture, I don't know how it is in other countries because I have not migrated to any other place other than the U.S., but the Guatemalan women in the city, Siempre buscan, pues sí. the, the women will, will, will put on makeup, they'll get flirty, they're, and they're supported by the mothers. So they may seduce uh, some young man that has a good economic position. But in, not in, this is not the case in indigenous culture. You look for women through via respect. You don't really look for the physical traits. You look more for the way they respect humanity. Entonces es mejor visto una mujer. Por eso se busca la educación desde chiquitas a las mujeres. That's why they always try to ensure educating the women since they're little, so that we don't, you know, like for example, we don't really put makeup on. That we are workers. We learn basic things. We respect the elders. When someone marries, if they're very young, they are respected. They're, they're not really sought out for beauty, although we are beautiful. Pero no se busca esa parte. But that's not why we are we seek each other out. Thank you, Maria. Just to just to take one more moment to acknowledge what Donna said. If at any point we feel like we need to stop or take a break, just feel free to uh, to name that, and it's totally fine. So, Naomi starts us off uh, in this chapter with a plan. And it's interesting, She Ruth is not named at the beginning of this. She just refers to her as my daughter. So again, we're not seeing the Ruth the Moabite language. And Naomi just names the reality here. I need to seek some security for you. Here is our kinsman Boaz. 
and he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Nomi tells Ruth to wash and anoint herself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to Boaz until he has finished eating and drinking. (laughs) When he lies down, go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this um, language of uncovering his feet is a... uh, circumlocution about you know the male genitalia uh so naomi is going into this like eyes open about you know what she feels needs needs to be done and ruth responds all that you tell me i will do interestingly enough there's some language in in the hebrew of commanding naomi commanding ruth the the language in the hebrew there is only really used typically when God makes a command. So the the author uh, is trying to, I mean, is using very serious language about this. And the threshing floor, you know, commentators will note that it's really, threshing barley is really hot work. And at the end of it, there's this sort of expectation of celebration and that it's a common place for sort of sexual encounter. In fact, at the end of the chapter, Boaz is worried that if Ruth, after spending the night with him, doesn't leave at the right time, I think that he tells her to leave very early so that she's not confused for basically a prostitute. Like, you know, her honor, he's trying to like preserve it by keeping this sort of like scandal away from this encounter that they have at the threshing floor because that's a typical place where this sort of thing would have, that sort of thing would have gone down. Would I understand that part to be uh, the woman who, you know, she's showing up, but in the, you know, in my culture, it's not really, doesn't really play out this way. Um, people try to um, make sure their women remain abstinent until matrimony. So they celebrate the sacredness. That's why they do a big party. When the man tells the man that he likes somebody, the father goes, talk with the parents of the woman, and they and if they agree, they'll take care of them there. Um, uh, so you know, but all of it is sort of behind closed doors, and and they a lot of people grow up their lives not really knowing about their sexuality like that. <laughs> And they discover, well, anyways, the man ends up uh, knowing more about sexuality than women. It's a very taboo topic to this day. There are women that marry, they may be courted by a boyfriend, but you're always warned to not take any presents, not even a chocolate. Oh, or, or like juice or drinks, because that means that you are committing to him. So women shouldn't receive anything in order to not commit. And if they decide they do want to commit, they can have the conversation and they'll be taken care of by the parents. They'll have conversations about their home. And there are women who have had the experience where they marry and they come back to their homes because they thought they, they, thought they were just marrying to like... Uh, 
wash the clothes and, and cook food. So they're a little disappointed because they thought that, you know, the sexuality part that they didn't know that that could be done. That's where they realized that, you know, they didn't want the love just to take care of each other. And they realized that that's the only way they can have children and the man wants children. But that, and that's in the way that they end up discovering their sexuality. The children are sort of um, set aside through these conversations between the grown-ups. To this day, it's a very taboo topic. Repeat pardon. Oh, yeah. Wait. As you're growing up, you're, you feel like you have to fear having those conversations uh, with adults. You don't really talk about it. And that's where a lot of these dangers happen. And people wonder, why is this happening? So that's why it's important to talk. So you can also be wary of the dangers. Maria, do you think it's a taboo topic because of the influence of Catholicism? Or is that also a part of... Um, no, no es el catolicismo. No, it's not really Catholicism. It's been that way since the beginning. For each topic, you know, this people sort of decide an age for when they uh, sort of bring it up. Because it's also prohibited to touch on it. Yeah, they don't really talk about it. But I still try to warn people, you know, is is in that part, the not talking about sexuality is dangerous for kids. And they are the ones who, up until they when they marry, nobody notices. I never noticed. Mi mamá when my mom got pregnant. You just see that the kids arrive, but you don't really see much else. I <laughs> saw <laughs> <laughs> a lot of innocence. I would took a, I would see, and the lady would arrive with her. She would arrive with some tools, and I would, I would think, is that where the baby comes from? <laughs> from the toolbox. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would think. <laughs> There's a lot of innocence still. In America, we have this um, myth that some people tell their children that a stork. <laughs> will bring babies. <laughs> so yeah, in my mind, I never really saw when I was like 14, I went to the, the city and said, maybe I would think, is that person just fat from eating too much? <laughs> so because ne they never talked to me about it and if you touched on the topic, they would tell you, no, that's an adult topic. You're not married. And for many things, like one time it happened to me. We went on a walk, a long walk with people in the, in the city. Somebody bought condoms at a pharmacy. And, 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 I, and I asked them, how do you eat that? <laughs> what do you want that for? I, I didn't know that condoms even existed. <laughs> <laughs> so really we don't talk about this I think that you know God doesn't really show up in supernatural ways in the book of Ruth most of the time when God is referenced it's when Ruth makes her vow to Naomi 
It's when Naomi talks about her suffering. It's when Boaz greets his workers in chapter two. And then it's in this encounter when Boaz uh, says, who are you? And Ruth announces herself and basically asks him to offer her protection. He invokes God and says, may you be blessed by the Lord. And then, you know, looking forward to the fourth chapter, the author explicitly says that God is present in the conception of their child. So it's interesting that all of these examples are mundane, but all of the ways that God is invoked in these encounters is in the midst of these mutual care between people. You know, the, this concept that we don't see in, in the text because we don't read Hebrew, but this, this idea of hesed, loving kindness. But at the same time, there's also this intense vulnerability, but in that the absence of that blessing or that loving kindness is this great danger for Ruth that we heard about in chapter two. Boaz instructing his workers, his male workers, you know, not to harass her, not to, not to attack her. So I think that we talk about like the taboo nature of sexuality and, in you know, many cultures, but especially in, in Christianity, it's extremely taboo. And yet I think that, uh, Ruth challenges us by naming God's presence it at the place of, you know, these sexual encounters. And I think in the presence of, sort of the mundane joining of Ken. But this part here, I, I think they also say to just go with the man, but do not let let it be known that that the man shouldn't know in advance. But she, so she was putting herself in danger. She doesn't say to like have a conversation about it. She says to just go and not let it be known. You, we kind of have this image and aid of Boaz doing this hard work, eating, getting a little drunk, passing out, (laughs) and then waking up to Ruth. We don't really know it. I mean, the text is a little ambiguous. Like, do they have sex? Does she just like, you know, lay down next to him? I think the, the author is being a little coy because at midnight, the man was startled. And there was a woman, and then he says, thank God for you. (laughs) I think that uh, the author is happy to let people decide what they think happens. I mean, this last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. Is that, I mean. Pero si aplicamos esto a la fecha. But if we apply this to today, when a woman goes out to look for a man, the woman, the man is not really going to make himself responsible. Mm-hmm. And like the way they said that it, it'll happen that when you lay down, you'll note well he, where he lays down. Where they say, go uncover his feet. I thought that they really meant feet. But Isaac said that's not the case. <laughs> I mean, you know, they they just had different ways of talking about the body when this text was written. Uh-huh. So, so even if they were talking about like 
intense emotion, they would talk about that um, being like present in your bowels, not in your heart, the way that we do today. Uh, and and similarly here with you know the, geni- the genitals and like. <laughs> I said, why why wouldn't you just hug him? <laughs> Because, you know, I think about the heart. <laughs> it's just a, yeah, it's just a difference. And it's just a good reminder that this is an ancient text. Yeah, I need to learn more. <laughs> but no, I, you're not alone. But in those times then, by being that way, it was sort of a way, you know, to assume that the man's going to accept you. And that in that way, uh, Naomi would ensure to to try to find a, a way for for the wealth well being of both of them, yeah, and and remember that at the beginning of this, we talked about how Israelite men were forbidden from marrying Moabite women. So Boaz isn't just going to come propose to Ruth on his own. She is doing this because she's taking this risk that if she shows her interest, that he'll return it. Donna, what are you thinking about through all this? You've been quiet. Um, I'm, you know, just having a hard time putting all of my thoughts together in a way that feels like it's going to come out coherently. (laughs) I I had been thinking um, about this interaction. Well, you know, the interaction between Naomi and Ruth, where Naomi is encouraging Ruth, you know, to seek out. Boaz in this way and and then you know subsequently the interaction between Boaz and Ruth on the threshing floor and there's just a lot of things here that um the you know we talked about this a little bit during the last recording about you know immigrants migrant people being accepted or not accepted in relation to how we view them as commodity. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in this instance, you know, it's not, it's not just about the sexual encounter, but what, you know, what can um, result from the sexual encounter, Mm -hmm. you know, which is Boaz accepting Ruth as, a partner, a wife, and and then having children who will then, you know, continue the line of this family and and also secure, you know, a home and, you know, economic stability for both Naomi and Ruth. And so, you know, in that way, it, it feels related to how we, you know, advocate for or argue against the presence of migrants in in the US. Yeah, and so I you know I have I have a lot of concerns about that. You know, it's interesting because a few years ago during the Obama administration and just as, as an aside I just want to talk about how you know Obama was as terrible to immigrants as the current administration is and you know, and I think there's this like, um, what do you call that? Historic um, amnesia, amnesia a- about those is- issues. 
but during that presidency, there was a there was a popular, you know, just like a way of uh, like a derogatory way of thinking of migrant women in particular. You know, the the arguments back then had to do with migrant women supposedly crossing the border either when they were pregnant or you know with the intention of becoming pregnant once they crossed the border so that they could then have a child in the US and secure the right to stay here and there was the whole derogatory terming of that child as a you know quote unquote anchor baby and so you know that i think that it's clear that throughout history <laughs> there has been a desire to control the sexuality of in this case migrant women but i think all all women considered part of a minority group or you know a marginalized community because we see that whole you know controlling of women's sexuality for instance, with um, Black women, particularly in poor communities, <laughs> you know, in radical community, there's a there's a there's a popularity around the idea of polyamory. You know, people being free to choose multiple partners, but poor Black women aren't allowed to be polyamorous. They are gold diggers. They are welfare queens who have multiple children with multiple quote-unquote baby daddies, you know, and are looked down upon for living in this way where they have multiple partners and that they get to control their own sexuality. And so, you know, what society does to them is impose these ideas of their sexuality and the choices they make about it as something bad. And I think that happens with migrant women too you know, um, especially black and brown migrant women. And I think that that another bit of history to bring up in the, that context is the sterilization of black women all yeah. throughout the 20th century because their reproduction was seen as this sort of uncontrollable, you know, deviant sexuality. And then tying social support from the state to the condition of of being sterilized and many times without consent by yes. the women that history if you're hearing this for the first time is all over the united states and i, I think it's something that's not really in the white imagination but what you said about you know the stereotype of the anchor baby and uh, you know the the conditions of the obama administration gets to something that's still present for the original audience of this text, which is this idea of like the joining of people from different cultures, different races as like compromising the purity of Israel in this case, and that being seen as a loss. The anxiety that comes with that when sort of racial purity is at the heart of your society, like it is in white America, ends up manifesting itself and all the ways that you just laid out, you know, migration is um, a threat to the white American family, the nuclear family, from like 
you know, this notion that migrants are going to be like MS-13 coming through states to harm people in their suburban neighborhoods, to, you know, the loss of jobs, to this notion that, you know, this inappropriate mixing of races is taking place. It's all ultimately, all of those like pieces of propaganda are motivated by this notion that we need to protect the white heterosexuality, heterosexual nuclear family. But it doesn't say in the chapter, I forget which chapter says it. For me, all of the churches, I was raised in the Catholic Church. Well, they, they, the white people, brought with them to this continent. They brought the knowledge that, that says that men can have all the children that God tells them to do. But to this day, that they, they should also um, preach in their church that, that you can't bring children to the world because ju- uh, you can't just bring all the children to the world because they, they need to be fed and taken care of. Because they only brought that part in Guatemala in the indigenous region, they brought that idea where it says you have to accept what the Bible says. You should have all the children that God wants you to have. There, there they are endangering the mother. And so then the man is always having children because he's always wanting to sleep with the woman. And he doesn't really know how to use methods. He doesn't really know how to use family planning. And so they end up having a lot of children that they can't feed. But the church really needs to change that notion because they're really deep in that. People need to realize that when children are born, they need to get food. They drilled this idea into the heads of men. And they end up wanting to always be sleeping with the women. And that's how the kids are born. Sometimes the mothers die. The kid children stay behind. And the state doesn't care. And even they think of it as a sin to plan your family. So it's good. It would be good if from the head of the church to educate the pastors, the parents, in the same way that they were good at teaching everybody that you have to bring all the children into the world. Now they should go out and educate again and say, sorry, we were wrong. (laughs) That's what's happening today. And because in the Guatemalan state, they don't really um, pay attention to that part of the church. People, people seek ways to survive crossing borders. And it hurts to see the children dying. No, no one wants to suffer seeing their live child die. So, so in the church over there when they marry, they, they tell them, may you have all the child that God wants you to have. That's what they say in the altar. That's why I didn't marry through the Catholic Church. I am a free woman because I don't like to see children dying. So please come back and fix that notion that you have to fill the earth with children. So the families that Donna is talking about, if they had a couple children, they, they might be because of that notion they had. And, and then they were forced upon them all of these notions of sterilization. We didn't have things that we didn't, it wasn't that way before the, the Europeans arrived. That's why during the war, in the mountains they were talking about to not have children during that time. Because you were putting them in danger just for um, most of them to die anyways. So human beings can understand, but the church is really at fault. So we have to tell the pastors when, the, when they're marrying a couple, 
that phrase they use, have all the children that God wills. If, if the pastor is saying that, it's like God is speaking to them. I don't know what Isaac says when he's marrying a, a, a couple. That's not a part of the Methodist liturgy. <laughs> <laughs> so then the Catholics have to change. Mm-hmm. Blair had asked a question about the connections between Ruth and sex work, and that's what Donna's about to talk about. Sorry, I just wanted to... That's okay. You know, I, uh, I think that, we, you know, we, we do have to take care to allow, well, in the modern context, especially to allow space for people's autonomy and making decisions about whether or not to engage in sex work. And, you know, the, you know, the sort of arguments against supporting sex work as any other kind of work that that have to do with people feeling coerced into it. And that sort of thing kind of falls apart when you start to think about lots of work that people do. Um, Most of us, work um, in jobs that are not jobs of our choice. You know, we, they're the jobs that are available to us, the jobs that we happen to qualify for, even though maybe our passion is in another field or, you know, doing something else, you know, and, and there may, you know, we have to allow for the possibility that there are people who actively choose sex work over other work, even when there is other work available as an option to them. Uh, but it, it, it does seem that, you know, Ruth is, is being coerced into this relationship with Boaz. But, but it's hard to say that even because the, the author is, doesn't give a lot of explanation about how anybody feels about anything <laughs> in any of their interactions in this book. You know, that this, you know there's just no um, revelation of, the inter the inner workings of anybody's heart or mind um, or their bells in this book, <laughs> and and so you know I think maybe we might be you know looking at it through a modern lens to to think that uh, you know we may be imposing our own ideas about consent in this because because yes Ruth may be making this choice uh, to go forward with the suggestion by Naomi because she's, you know, out of survival, you know, but again, she went out into the field to thresh, what were they threshing? Barley. Barley. (laughs) Out of survival too. She possibly didn't want to do that either (laughs) because that's really hard work in the hot sun for hours and hours, Um, you know, backbreaking work, you know. So, so, you know, she, she didn't really consent to either of those things. Yet here she is needing to survive, needing to figure out for herself and for Naomi as her family, how she was going to secure, you know, their economic safety. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I have, there are like three things I want to say, but I mean, I guess one question would be, Donna, just in direct response to that would be, is Ruth, like, how much is Ruth agreeing to about this? How much does she know about this when she makes this vow to Naomi in the first chapter, right? Like, how far does that extend over the rest of the book? How far does the author think it extends versus, you know, in reality, it might. 
And then, you know, there is one other thing that we didn't talk about in chapter two that I want to come back to. But just as far as an ancient versus a modern lens, I think this is always a tension when we're reading these texts. But I think it's a valid one because, you know, conversations about these scriptures can happen on multiple levels. The level of how we're reading them, how they're interacting with our cultural assumptions that we've talked about, about conditions, modern conditions around immigration, American culture, and then, you know, what is just flat out in the text and what isn't. So I, I think all of the discussion has been valid on that level. But the the thing I want to point out about what's at stake for Naomi and Ruth in this is that, right, you know, the people that this is describing do not have an active notion of the afterlife. We've talked in past recordings about the importance of memory and family and kin as how your um, presence on the earth is sort of passed on for Naomi and Ruth continuing the the like presence of their husbands in this world is tied to their line continuing with children and and that would have been I think a major motivating factor for them a major concern for them because of the love that they had for their partners so I think that it's you know one thing just to note I I don't know how much it enlightens us, but it's just a key difference that Ruth and Naomi don't think that Elimelech and Malon and Kilion are waiting for them in heaven to like be reunited one day. It's, it's they're gone. And the only way to sort of continue things for them is by continuing this family. And so I think that, you know, when we're thinking through motivation, that one is a, a big one. And in a way that, most Christians probably wouldn't quite connect with because of different understandings about spirituality beyond beyond death. Sí, digo yo que, yeah, I was thinking. Pues la, el hombre siempre ha tenido como poder. Man has always fuerza física. sort of uh, physical power. Women are also, physically the woman has been she might be physically weak, but in that way, her intelligence, they have a lot of intelligence. Ruth analyzed the situation. She said, well, this is one way. And she has, you know, she's young. She can, I can continue my lineage and my survival. So then, yeah, she sort of thought of it that way. And for for Ruth to, to marry with, um, with Bo- Boaz, they are always thinking about lineage. So that's why... That's why this, to this day we're still reading into this um, so many years later. Ruth was very smart, and Naomi, and Naomi. I, I do just want to call us back to one instance in chapter two that we didn't really get to discuss because I think it's relevant for some of the expectations that Ruth and Naomi may have had in in chapter three, which is in verse fourteen of chapter two. Uh, you know, I'll just read 14 through 16 or 14 through, yeah, just verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. I mean, there's also this moment where Boaz is like, serving Ruth this meal, which is just like completely unprecedented for the sort of cultural expectation of that moment. 
So I think that that's certainly something that when Ruth goes back to Naomi at the end of that day, she's reporting to her. And it, and I think in some way it has to inform the way that Naomi, Naomi and Ruth are analyzing the situation in chapter three. Uh, and we just didn't get to touch on it last time. But the notion that a man would serve a woman at a meal, but also a Moabite woman uh, is significant, I think, in establishing some sort of pretext for this kind of like, I uh, just like totally blanked on the word I was going to use, but on this erotic encounter that they have on the threshing floor doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's at least some indication on Boaz's end that he's like, you know, he's not doing that just solely out of the goodness of his heart. Mm-hmm. He saw that she was a worthwhile woman. Tiene otros conocimientos. She, she has many knowledges. So for both of them, yeah, it was really good, the encounter. It still doesn't like, what I just said though, doesn't take anything away from what Donna said about commodity and, and the nature of gendered expectations about migrant women. I think in a lot of ways it didn't, reinforces it but i but pointing out that boaz was doing things that indicated sort of a sexual attraction to ruth and that yeah i think it only just serves to reinforce the point that donna's trying to make Pero sí, han habido en la historia, but yeah throughout history si, si hablamos de, um, si hay mujeres que, there have been many women that have migrated to other places to to make their family to look for material well-being. I know many a couple cases. Entonces sí, sí sucede todavía y ahora con con Facebook. And now through <laughs> Facebook. Oh, now through Facebook you can connect with many hearts across the world. Y pues las, los hombres se arriesgan en llamar, pagar el viaje de las mujeres. And and women and men take many risks in uh, calling out to women and offering to pay for their trips. And the women think it through. And sometimes the men end up heartbroken because they leave with someone else, maybe to the United States. It happens, it happens today. It's, it's, it's not like true love. It's like, it's just, it's like an inter, just internet connection. <laughs> so out of this um, encounter, you know, whether or not you decide that Ruth and Boaz have sex on the threshing floor he makes this promise to her that he will he will redeem the the land of Naomi's family but also that um but first he says there's another person who's closer to you and Ken and um we'll have to sort of adjudicate that together in an assembly and that's what goes on in chapter 4 and then there's this like little bit at the end of chapter three about him giving her six measures of barley to take back to Naomi. And I'm not quite, I mean, it, it's sort of a strange kind of thing. I guess maybe he's saying to her, like, you know, he says, Ruth says that um, when he, when she gives the, gra- the grain to Naomi, that Boaz didn't want her to go home to her mother-in-law empty-handed. So maybe it's like some sort of promise that he's going to do what he said or what, but it, I don't know. What do y'all think about this at the end? It's, it's sort of, it's sort of a bizarre way for the chapter to end after, you know, this encounter. 
I just assumed it was some kind of dowry or something. Right. I mean, was that not practice? No, I think you're, I think you're right that it's like some sort of like offering towards Naomi about like a guarantor of his intention or something like that. When the man is trying to court the woman and he brings his parents, they bring some food. And if those, that food is received, they take that to mean that the woman is, is agreeing to marry. They bring bread, they bring like soda and drinks. They try to figure out what the um, what the family likes. If they if they like to drink um, uh, liquor, they'll bring that. They'll, they'll present it. If, it. if it's not accepted, the man won't feel very happy. But but they but they won't touch anything, and it'll just come back with them. That's what she said. What? What um, boss presented, if, if she uh, received it, that means that she committed. It's like a form of commitment that they do in a public way. Well, I, I think you're right, Maria, because Naomi responds. Um, she basically just says, Boaz is going to make a commitment to you today. He will not rest. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the People's Commentary on the Book of Ruth. We'll be continuing our conversation with Maria and Donna every Sunday over the next few weeks. And I hope that you will recommend the show to others. Subscribe, like, review, all of that stuff helps us get the word out about this work. It helps us lift Maria's voice. Remember to check out the show notes for more info about Maria's story and how you can support her in her journey to safely live in the United States. And if you're looking for something a little more irreverent, the Magdalene Network also has a talk show called Until We Get Canceled featuring myself, Carrie Serbaugh, and Brian Bliss. Um, Finally, if you want to help support the show, share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next Sunday for another episode on the Book of Ruth. Peace. Peace.